0: On the panel today, Global BC's Richard Zussman, BC Today's Shannon Waters, and the Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw to discuss the hot political stories of the week. Then we put ride-sharing under a microscope with Kamloops North MLA Peter Milibar and the Vancouver Board of Trade CEO Ian Black. For
1: Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL
0: News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to uh, Inside Politics, an overcast, sort of a wet day here in Kamloops. Pleasure to be joined by Shannon Waters, Rob Shaw, and Richard Zussman. Welcome all.
2: Good morning. (laughs) Uh, morning.
0: I trust trust you guys are all still waiting for your Uber to show up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to Seattle tomorrow, Shane, and they have Uber there. Yeah. I'm very excited to see what this big uh, secret is all about.
0: You've never done it?
2: I've done lots of times. Of course I've done it lots of times, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of time, Shane. has been around for a while. I'm not sure if you knew that, but yeah. Uber's been around
0: <laughs> in
2: North America. Uh, it seems like Vancouver's, you know, we did have Uber at one point in Vancouver, but it didn't last very
0: long. That's right. Okay, so here's a little snippet from Claire Trevena yesterday. as She held, a, I don't know, how do you want to characterize it, a, an interesting news conference.
3: Six pieces of legislation need to be amended, ready to be able to bring in ride-hailing. So that is our commitment. By this full session, as promised by the Premier, we'll be bringing in legislation which will allow ride-hailing companies to start to apply.
0: Wow. Promise made, promise kept, Rob.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Unfurl the mission accomplished banner over the uh, (laughs) deck of the aircraft carrier. Yeah, I will characterize that as a bad performance by the minister. Someone in government thought they were going to be too smart by half, and they were going to have the minister come out and say, guess what, everyone, ride-sharing is still on track with legislation in 2018. And the government handed out the press release to reporters in the press conference after the minister started speaking. And if you read that, it revealed that, no, in fact, the government has delayed ride-sharing until at least the fall Of 2019, and I don't know what the new Democrats think they're trying to accomplish by creatively obscuring the truth in these press conferences. They seem desperate to buy themselves, you know, a couple of hours of confused coverage, uh, and they succeeded in some ways in doing that. But it was sad, and and you know, it it makes me wonder. I I don't think the the calculations have changed politically on why the new Democrats are hesitant to do ride sharing. But it Mm -hmm. makes me wonder if they have any idea what they're doing if. They're obsessing with making these announcements as bizarrely uh, un-understandable as possible instead of finding a solution to ride-sharing. It's just a a weird event.
0: Yeah, we're moving faster on legalizing marijuana, which has its own significant safety issues, uh, than we are on ride-sharing, which is just mind-blowing. Shannon?
5: Yeah, it... uh... I mean, we were expecting something substantial, I think, yesterday. Um, Maybe I'm still a little bit naive or was hoping for a little bit more, but they say they're going to release this taxi report and the next steps on ride sharing. I mean, I think we kind of knew that the taxi report was going to be supportive of the industry. It, It was aimed at finding a way to kind of modernize taxis and make them able to compete with ride sharing, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Um, that was something that uh, Dan Harris said yesterday, you know, it's about consumer choice. It's a good thing to have competition, a competitive taxi industry and ride sharing. But it's just gone on for so long, and I think British Columbians, especially those in the Lower Mainland, are just so fed up with waiting for the government to bring in ride-sharing that anything short of announce- the NDP announcing they were going to keep their promise to bring ride-sharing in this year was just going to be you know, not a good announcement, as Rob said, and a poor performance, again, by, uh, by Minister Trevena.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, we can all relax in, in one aspect because the minister has assured us that this is in no way stretched, no form, uh, no impact. This is not a political decision. So maybe we can take a breath on that <laughs> side, Richard.
2: Yeah. You know, Shane, we, we've spoken a lot about this in the past that, you know, the taxi industry and the lobby is incredibly strong, especially in Metro Vancouver. And, for a long time, uh, Mayor Gregor Robertson in Vancouver and his vision council were criticized for being beholden to the taxi industry. And the one guy on Robertson's council who had the strongest relationships with the taxi industry was Jeff Meggs. He was a city councillor, and guess what? He's now the chief of staff to Premier John Horgan. So it's not a huge surprise to to see the government uh, so strongly working with the taxi industry to ensure that No hairs are touched on their head in terms of changing uh, a quickly changing industry. There's also the idea of these ridings in Surrey, which again, uh, Green Party critic Adam Wilson made this point yesterday, that this comes down to partisan politics in a few ridings. There are a number of taxi drivers who live in communities who are strong advocates for the taxi industry. Uh, and they are pushing hard for the government not to make any changes here, or to make very slow changes to ensure the taxi industry is kept cold. So it, it's it's just very it's it's become sort of crazy at this point how political this
0: has become. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the other fallback lines uh, for the minister Rob was this safety issue. Hey, it's about safety. We got to take our time. We got to get it right because we want everybody to be safe. <laughs>
4: Yeah, that's a great line. I mean, I that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> people have safety issues waiting on the side of the road for a cab right now yeah. in the morning, I guess. I, you know, there was a lot of excuses in the press conference. Safety, it's going to take a long time for ICBC to develop a new insurance regime. Apparently, they need a year to do that. ICBC just capped... Uh, pain and suffering claims on minor injuries—the most significant overhaul to the Crown Corporation ever—and they did it in a handful of months. So a year to develop a per-kilometer insurance regime for for uh, ride-sharing seems ridiculous too. I mean, they're all just basically excuses. Uh, there, there. You know, there's a lot in that taxi report that would be interesting for the government to to implement. Um, there's a there's a section about safety where it points out that 10% of existing cab drivers. Um, don't have to undergo criminal record checks, mm. a loophole in the way that the licenses are done. So safety is just a red herring by the minister. I guess she had to say something to justify a delay. But it, it
2: just let me weigh in on that quick,
3: Shane, sure, because yeah, I
2: tweeted something out about that yesterday, and I've never had a tweet that ha- has had more feedback than this one about the safety issue. Yeah. Rob's exactly right. Clearly she had to say something. Uh, the reason I bring it up is because I've received lots of interesting comments about ways that people don't feel safe right so like rob mentioned waiting for a taxi cab at any point of the day but especially you know when it's one o'clock in the morning and you're in metro vancouver and everybody's getting out of the bars at the same time and people are waiting in some cases hours to get a cab there are people all around you who are drunk and that is not a safe situation for people to be standing there waiting for a cab and if there are other transit options like better public transit but also ride hailing then there would be a sense that people could feel safer there's also the safety issue around if there are transportation options people may get in their cars drunk and drive clearly that is the biggest safety issue on the road is drunk driving uh that is a huge concern so there are a lot of things here that are unsafe about slow playing implementing new transit options and it is a massive flaw in the argument and i think Trevenna provides a huge disservice to the idea of safety by bringing it up
0: yeah, no, I concur, especially on the drunk driving front. If you have more options to get somewhere, there's going to be less of that. Yeah, uh, exactly. Shannon, There's uh, this disruptive technologies aspect of it uh, struck me yesterday. I mean, uh, a lot of this is sort of an apples to oranges comparison, but we've adopted a lot of disruptive technologies that we use in BC every day. And people watch Netflix, that's put the movie industry, the cable TV industry up on its ear. Uh, maybe the closest comparison perhaps is Airbnb, which has uh, opened up a whole slew of things for people to rent out their homing units, That so maybe a uh, good chunk of that has contributed to the housing crisis, but hey, we worked through that, we got a tax regime, no one's stopping Airbnb from operating, so why is ridesharing such a big deal for this government?
5: I don't know why they've sort of picked this issue aside from you know as has been previously pointed out the power of sort of the taxi lobby I feel like the line about you know we need to take a sensible approach to disruptive technologies was kind of like the safety line um, she had to say something and uh, it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense um, I thought another good line from Trevena and I mean I guess kudos to her for saying it with a straight face but being asked, you know, why BC is so behind the times when it comes to ride-sharing, and she says, I wouldn't say that we're be- far behind <laughs> the times at all. I would say that we're doing things in a very methodical way, um, which kind of made me laugh. I mean, it does fall in line with the government saying, you know, they're they're taking evidence-based approaches to all of these various issues and conducting consultations and stuff like that, but I, like I said, I think it was like the safety line. she needed to say something and disruptive technology was you know the phrase of the moment
0: yeah well you can i think you can hail an uber in Kazakhstan, but not vancouver (laughs) so apparently we're really with the times uh the the last point i want to raise on this one is uh, i know smitty had a pretty good article about this the other day about how the taxi industry is looking to block out ride sharing and get their own app uh, the cater app up and running and linked uh, to uh, an old familiar name in mo sahoda rob
4: yeah, well, the taxi industry, which has a monopoly right now, wants to have a monopoly on on an app, which they're going to call Cater and Develop, and they want Uber and Lyft to either join or, or not be able to operate, which is a bit like, you know, trying to create a bulletin board system and telling Facebook it has to join or it can't
2: operate.
4: <laughs> it doesn't work. Right? I mean, their their business model is built around their apps, but the taxi industry is floating this. It didn't sound like Trevenna was too keen on the idea... I even understood what she was saying yesterday, or she understood the question. It wasn't clear if her answer was clear at all. But uh, it would be a tough sell for the New Democrats to get behind it. In the Hera taxi report yesterday, he says it's too risky and unnecessary to give the taxi industry a monopoly on a new app. Nonetheless, they've got former NDP, cabinet minister, party president, Mosa Hoda, Lobbying. I know Lyft has the former NDP executive director Michael Gardner lobbying for them. So everyone's got their lobbyists to try and open the doors. But that's a really tough sell publicly to just perpetuate the monopoly for the existing taxi industry. And I, I don't see how the NDP do that.
0: Yeah, I don't see how they do it either. Uh, Richard, is this is this in any way like a, a death by a thousand cut strategy? You just kind of keep pushing these guys off until you hope they fold their tent and go home. I think they're trying to do
2: that, Shane. But these big companies, you know, Uber doesn't really need Vancouver, nor does Lyft. They obviously would like to be here. Michael Gardner's lobbying hard, like Rob mentioned. Uh, Uber has a full-time guy based in Vancouver who's been working on this file for years. They're willing to wait, but they don't want to make a lot of... Um, they don't want to... They, they want to play by their rules. So it's always been that case with these ride-hailing companies. There are a few things... Um, in the HERA report uh, and intravenous press conference yesterday that uh, have left them concerned, uh, one is an entrant fee. You know, there's mention here in the HERA report that any new entrant into the market would have to pay a fee to do that. The way that the Uber and Lyft models work now uh, is they don't pay to get into the market. Uh, so that's one of the major concerns. The other one is around... Um, regionality. So the way it works in Metro Vancouver now is basically every municipality has its own taxi company. So if you're coming in from Surrey in a Surrey cab, you get dropped off downtown. Say you're dropped off at a corner where someone's waiting to go to Surrey, they can't get in that cab and go back to Surrey. They're not allowed to do that. They're only allowed to pick up in their own jurisdiction. Uh, clearly that's a major flaw. Harris suggested uh, getting rid of that but moving to a regional approach. So even if you do that and your region is the Fraser Valley, you won't be able to pick up in Metro Vancouver. Again, Uber doesn't work that way. The drivers is Basically drive around, pick up rides, and then uh, as soon as they drop off, become active again. So those two things would be big concerns. Uh, also, to the point of Uber, I just popped up a list here of the be- the biggest cities in the world that don't have Uber. So Vancouver's a pretty good company here, Shane. Hmm. Barcelona, Spain, Buffalo, New York, Buenos Aires, Argentina, and Frankfurt,
0: Germany, and then basically everywhere else in the world has Uber. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last word to you, Shannon. Uh, one of the fallback lines for this minister, too, has been, uh, hey, it's, it's not really me. I mean, Uber and Lyft haven't applied. They could apply at any time. I haven't seen those applications. Does that pass the smell test?
5: Uh, I do not think so. and I mean, Chveda even said in the in the conference yesterday that yes, these companies could apply, but I believe she said they've identified or they've perceived that our system is too onerous, the current system for obtaining licenses to do passenger transportation. So I mean it's a line that the government can use because technically it's it's true they could apply. Um, but there's very little chance that they would actually, get the license that they were looking for right now applicants have to prove that there's a need for new taxi licenses and their competitors are allowed to say to argue against them and to say that you know there's no need we're taking care of things everything is fine we don't need this new license so again i think it's similar to that disruptive technology and safety line it's it's something that gets said technically it's true but no i wouldn't say it passes the smell test at all
0: all right let's take a quick break here in inside politics on radio nl we'll be right back to continue our conversation with shannon rob and richard
1: local news now radio nl six ten a.m and radionl.com to you. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL.
0: Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Richard Zussman, Rob Shaw, and Shannon Waters. Uh, we talked about ride-sharing in the last segment. We're going to talk about that new labor agreement uh, that was rolled out by the Premier earlier this week, uh, covering large infrastructure projects. And Shannon, that's uh, critics are saying, hey, listen, that's bringing back some bad memories from the 1990s and those project labor agreements that uh, govern such things as the island highway, uh, stuff like that. Uh, good or bad news on the labor front here?
5: I mean, it really does seem to depend on your perspective in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, the unions are happy with what's going forward. Raising the specter of the 1990s is something the liberals have done very often. We're talking Mm. about the island highway project in this case and the cost overruns um, that occurred there. I mean, I I don't think this announcement was unexpected, this is what happens with party politics, You, when you get into power you make good for the people who helped get you there. I think it's going to be one of those decisions that the government has made that we're going to have to wait and see how it plan how it plays out. Um, it's going to take time to see whether the training opportunities um, do come about, whether we boost apprenticeships, and uh, these apprentices are trained well. Whether there are more opportunities uh, for women and other underrepresented groups coming up. I mean. Yes, it was a big announcement. Yes, it does represent a significant shift, but I think it's going to take time um, for the results of that shift to become clear.
0: Okay. Uh, as you mentioned there, the Premier hailing this as a way to create local jobs, uh, improve wages, create more apprenticeship opportunities, etc. Critics will say, well, it's going to raise costs, it's impact the timing of a project, could even change the scope of a project. Richard, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure timing is going to be a big factor, but I do think cost is going to be a big factor. So, you know, unionized workers often come at a higher cost than non-unionized workers. I think that's known in the industry, and I think uh, with that will mean that projects will cost more. Uh, I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that uh, this government um, owes a lot of its success electorally and otherwise to union support. I do also believe that this government wants to do something to try to get more apprentices um, into the workplace. There are guarantees in these deals that uh, 25% or 20% of the workforce will be apprentices. Uh, That's a pretty substantial guarantee and will ensure training. There are also guarantees in these agreements that women will get opportunities. And and just like Shannon said, we're going to have to wait and see exactly what happens on these work sites, but there are guarantees in these agreements that the, that there will be more opportunities for those uh, who often don't get opportunities on these work sites. So it will be important to see how that plays out over time. Uh, but there is that legitimate concern, just like you raised, Shane, of projects costing more because the labor will cost more.
0: Yeah, uh, we're also got a new Crown Corporation that's essentially going to be a hiring hall for some of these projects, uh, which has other critics saying, "Hey, listen, a lot of uh, a lot of labor out there. I think the number is thrown around, is about eighty percent of the industry workforce is non-union." that's a way to unionize something and get those fees flowing into unions and get more union labor out there, a bit of a raid. Uh, what do you think, Rob?
4: Yeah, you know, I was struck by the fact that this is identical to the 1990s model. And I went back and read about the 1990s model in our paper, um, and it is is—it's the same. And I, I think it's interesting, that's either a really hard um, ideological shift left for the New Democrats, uh, or it's just, just what... Um, You know, the old guard in the party wants to see happen again. It's hard to imagine that 20 years later we can't change the model in some way or figure out a way to do it better. But Mm. back to um, hiring halls, union dispatch centers, um, you know, the government crown corporations, uh, affiliated groups with organized labor. If you're not a member of the B.C. building trades, uh, you know, sanctioned groups, you have to join one of their unions. So it's a way to push out... Um, the, the open shops as well, back into the unions that the building trades want. So it's a, it's a very old-school approach. And, I, you know, in the 90s when they announced this, they announced it with a press conference that touted benefits for female workers and Aboriginal workers. And 25 years later, we're doing the exact same thing. And I just, I just it just strikes me how old the idea is, mm-hmm. that it's, it's not refurbished or revitalized in any way. I, I find that kind of fascinating. It's almost like someone thought there was an institutional memory in the NDP that reverted back to this plan without changing it in any way. And I guess we'll see if it works in the year 2018.
0: <laughs> we certainly will. Uh, let's get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour here and we'll continue our conversation with Richard Sussman Rob Shaw and Shannon Waters on Inside Politics here on NL. Radio NL. Radio NL.com. Local news now. You're
1: listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Camloops Computer Center on Radio NL.
0: Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Richard Zussman and Rob Shaw and Shannon Waters. Uh, Guys, the premiers are wrapping up their meeting in New Brunswick. Uh, Looks like they may have gotten a little something done, getting word down the wire here that uh, they've agreed in principle to reduce trade barriers regarding the transportation of alcohol across provincial and territorial borders. That must have been a fascinating conversation uh, between John Morgan (laughs) and Rachel Notley on that topic. Uh, Richard? Yeah,
2: clearly it's an important issue for the wine industry in the Okanagan, is ensuring that they can get their products shipped out to consumers elsewhere. So, you know, right now there's distribution from craft breweries in BC and wineries in BC to liquor stores in Ontario and other places, but uh, this would allow for subscription based services. So, if you want to order a case of wine from your favorite winery in the Okanagan after a trip uh, and you live in Alberta or you live uh, even further east, um, there seems to to be some changes here that will allow that movement this is one of these bizarre issues Shane, that is it totally is. all the way up <laughs> to the supreme court of canada it stems from a case in new brunswick where a guy drove some alcohol across the border you know i grew up in ottawa and it was pretty typical once the liquor stores closed in ottawa uh, that we would go across the water to gatineau where they stayed open longer uh, and then buy our beer Uh, in Quebec and bring it back uh, to Ontario, and I was never worried I was going to get pulled over (laughs) when I got across the bridge. So it's (laughs) one of these bizarre things that you know, has existed for a long time. The rules aren't well enforced, but sometimes they are, and it's nice to see, especially for, you know, the huge wine and beer industry here, that they'll be able to get their fantastic products out to people across the country, uh, you know, that may not have had it anyway. So that's one thing. I also found it interesting, a lot of discussion yesterday about carbon pricing, you know, clearly with Ontario and Saskatchewan now, uh, you know, going to, to... battle in court over uh, the federal government's plan for a carbon price. Horgan was asked yesterday, Premier John Horgan, about whether he would ask for intervener status in that reference case uh, in order for B.C. to argue in favor of the carbon tax, and he didn't rule it out. He says he's waiting for uh, Attorney General David Eby's advice on that. Uh, but also is willing to tell any other premier in the province how well he believes carbon pricing has worked here in B.C.
0: All right. Uh, As well, in the New Brunswick meeting, I assume there's going to be other deeper divisions uh, uh, along the lines of the Doug Fords versus uh, John Horgan's left-right variety as well. Uh, It must have been some interesting discussions. Any idea what was on John Horgan's priority list heading over there, Shannon?
5: Well, he was, according to his office anyways, supposed to be talking about um, BC's work and uh, its intention to continue to defend our beautiful coastline out here. That's, I guess, a reference to our ongoing reference case and the province's stance on the Trans Mountain pipeline. Um, trade with the U.S. was also uh, a priority. The um, premiers are actually sending a letter to all of the American state governors essentially inviting Them to cooperate to try and sort of steer NAFTA in an agreeable direction, uh, possibly against sort of the White House's inclinations. Um, So, you know, a couple things going into this summer meeting. I was feeling a little bit sorry for Alberta Premier Rachel Notley uh, in that picture that was released yesterday where (laughs) she is the sole female standing in the middle of a very Mm. white and very male panel of Premier.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Rob, uh, Pharmacare on the agenda, a few other things. Is there anything that the Horgan can pull out of this as a, as a win, or, or is there any, anything on the agenda at all that he can kind of bring back?
4: I don't think so. I mean, Pharmacare has been going on for years, and it seems like Ottawa is kind of pushing that along, a national Pharmacare plan. I, the, the real loser in these meetings is going to be Justin Trudeau because he's watching this, <laughs> looking at the provinces splinter off, uh, a line behind each other on different reference cases on pipelines on the carbon tax, and his whole his whole kind of energy plan is is facing, you know, attacks from left, right, and center. I, I think, um, you know, Saskatchewan and Ontario basically calling Ottawa's bluff that they can force a carbon tax on everyone, and it creates this weird alliance where we're going to have to argue in favor of a carbon tax, uh, even though they're at each other's throats on the pipeline. So it's, it, the provinces are splintering uh, quite a bit, and mm-hmm. I don't think a lot gets accomplished at these meetings. The alcohol thing is... I mean, as Richard said, we've just been talking about it for years. It doesn't. It's an incremental move forward every time the provinces have to show that they're doing something together, and it just kind of is a ridiculous um, <laughs> announcement. I mean, it's gone from one case to two cases, so great.
0: But
4: <laughs> things are almost not accomplishing anything at
0: this point. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, a couple of issues to just to toss it to uh, each of you around the turn here. i uh, maybe start with you, Richard, uh, since you're an Ontario guy. I know Mr. Ford there is, wants a deep, dark look into the provincial books after uh, years of a liberal government and who surfaces to help out in that, but former Premier Gordon Campbell.
2: Yeah, that was really fascinating because he hasn't... In the last few years, we've seen a little bit more from him on a policy front in terms of speaking uh, to the media and publicly about issues, but he hasn't done a lot since he left here. He lives in Ontario now. He has a family there. He obviously has uh, connections to the Ford government, uh, not Ford particularly. And one of the weird things, back to carbon pricing, is Ford's very much opposed to it. Campbell's the one that brought it in here in B.C. Yeah. But this is an economic look. Campbell uh, is brilliant. Uh, with books and financially he's a good hire in that regard i'm not sure how the dynamics work but you know campbell now has until the end of august uh to look at the the liberals books in ontario i think a lot of people in ontario are like oh really interesting uh, Uh, Liberal is coming to look at Liberal's books. Well, Campbell isn't a small-L Liberal, he's a small-C Conservative. You know, everybody here knows about the Coalition, Ontario, not so much. So I think it is an interesting choice, and it will be interesting to see uh, Campbell's entry back into the public uh, realm here, at least for the
0: next few months. Absolutely. Uh, Rich Coleman uh, has been very much in the spotlight, mostly for all the wrong reasons lately. uh, He decided to bow out of the Surrey mayoral race. Uh, Just too much baggage there, Shannon?
5: I think that has to be a big piece of the puzzle. I mean, the people who are helping him organize deny it. They say that he was still, according to their polls or some research they conducted, he was still ahead of other candidates even after the dirty money report came out. But I just don't see how sort of the depth and the breadth of that report and his involvement didn't didn't hurt him. And I don't I don't really buy the family argument. I mean Coleman is is obviously a political animal. He's had a very long career. He's held some very storied positions. He's been the deputy premier, he was the interim opposition leader. I just don't see that he all of a sudden decides that, you know, he needs to spend more time with his family instead of doing this municipal run. I mean maybe he's decided he he likes the provincial game better potentially. I don't know. I guess we're going to see, but that's, uh, you know, I guess one sort of one question answered of what seems like a lot of uh, former provincial political operatives considering runs at uh, municipal elections this fall. Mm
0: -hmm. Does anybody think Coleman's running again, by the way? I don't think he will.
2: No. And Mm -hmm. I think uh, Jordan Bateman, who's been speaking on his behalf, said Mm -hmm. as much that, uh, this is basically it for him. I was surprised that he said, though he expects Coleman to stay the rest of the term. I sort of expected that mm-hmm. uh, he'd quit at some point in the next year and go back and, and oh. you know help his son uh, start up a new business uh, in the Langley Surrey area. So well, I
4: don't I don't expect him to run again.
0: He's got to give Jordan enough time to wind down with the ICBA, I assume. <laughs> <before>. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's going to be a while until he jumps into provincial <laughs> politics. Uh-huh, I'm right. expecting
2: that will come at some point too.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, final topic to you, uh, Richard. Uh, the ICBA. Speaking of them, is uh, launching a court challenge to stop this proportional representation thing, saying it's a violation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. They want it uh, gone through the court uh, to to suite, but uh, David Eby's lawyer said, "No, oh, if you want to play lawyer, we'll, we'll lawyer you. Yeah,
2: I think it's silly. You know, we often see that they want the courts to settle the dispute. The referendum's going to go ahead. I think it gets some media attention and continues this idea in people's heads that this is a fixed referendum, that it's not fair, and I think that helps Arguments made by organizations like the ICBA that uh, proportional representation is not the right thing to do here. So, but I, I you know, this isn't going to end up mm-hmm. in court, and if it does, it, it won't make any
0: difference. Okay, Rob, final word to you.
4: Yeah, no, hunting this thing off till September means it's pretty much dead in the water. But uh PR is going ahead, and I think everyone's going to start turning their minds to that probably in August, and we're going to ramp up pretty quick on all the ads and rhetoric and. As I predicted before on your show, Shane, I think we'll all be dumber by the time we <laughs> <laughs> because we're going to be we're going to be pulled with half facts and untruths uh, all over the place. But it'll still be interesting to cover.
0: Yeah, it will be that, guys. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. There we go. There's uh, Rob Shaw, Richard Zussman, and Shannon Waters. We'll talk to them, of course, on future shows. We'll take a quick break here on Radio NL, and on the other side, we're going to put ride-sharing under the microscope with Kamloops North MLA, Peter Millibar, and the CEO of the Board of Trade in Vancouver, Ian Black.
1: Local news now. Radio NL, 610 a.m., and RadioNL.com. From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio
0: NL. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're going to put ride-sharing under the microscope, as promised, Uh, in the studio with me here. Kamloops North MLA, Peter Millibar, who's struggling to understand headset technology as we speak. (laughs) There we go. Got to figure it out. (laughs) And on the phone, the CEO of the Vancouver Board of Trade, Ian Black. Ian, welcome.
6: Good morning, gentlemen, and to the listeners of the great city of Kamloops.
0: You have some ties here, do you not?
6: I do. I have a lot of family friends up there, yep.
0: Excellent stuff. Okay, uh, Ian, why don't we start with you. Back in 2016, uh, the board released a pretty comprehensive report into ride-sharing. Uh, here we are in 2018. Apparently, we're not going to see anything maybe until 2019. So, uh, first off, your reaction to yesterday, and, ha- and then how do we forge ahead on this thing?
6: Well, there's two reactions, or two pieces to what happened yesterday. First is the release of the report uh, by Mr. Hara, and second is the government's response to it. And in brief, and we can dive into this if you want, uh, the report itself was both good news and bad news. First of all, we were, we were very pleased that uh, Mr. Hara took some of the recommendations that we originally put in a fairly detailed manner in our report of 2016, and he put some meat on those bones and actually charted a path forward specifically as to how the government could do that. So that was kind of good. He acknowledged that there is work to be done in those areas, but this is what the the specifics were. Uh, He tagged the the criminal checks and safety elements, which we tagged early on, uh, and identified what needed to be done there, and he he made some specific commentary around some of the jurisdictional and geographical boundary issues with the municipalities in the lower mainland. So that was all good. Um, He also, incidentally, tapped into the, or identified the significant untapped demand that exists, and basically put to rest any notion that this is, uh, in some, uh, seen as threatening to the taxi industries in all the other cities where this has recently been rolled out. So all that stuff was good. The the stuff we weren't as pleased with was he was still leaning quite heavily towards uh, subsidizing or supporting financially the taxi industry as they go through this. That just hasn't been needed in either of our cities, so we're not a, a big fan of that as a free enterprise focused organization. We don't like governments picking winners and losers. Now, with respect to the government, ten words or less, we were upset with the uh, response of government. There's no need for a delay. Uh, this is not new. There's no new, new legislation to be written. We're not reinventing. Or there's no need to reinvent the wheel here. Much of what has to be done here can be done by regulation, not legislation. And this has been worked on by the bureaucrats and the Crown Corps like ICBC for several years. They've seen it coming. Uh, so there's no reason to, to delay this thing for another year, in our view.
0: Okay. Uh, Pete, uh, you and I talked about this yesterday a little bit, but uh, it strikes me that we're moving faster on marijuana legalization uh, than we are in getting Uber into the province. And a minister who who falls back on the safety line, well, I would suggest there's probably more safety issues with one than the other, yet we're going to have one and not the other.
7: Well, absolutely, and, and uh, to be clear, even the taxi industry when they presented at the, the Uber committee was very clear that they wanted a level playing field. There's criminal record checks that already happen, so that's not really hard to figure out how to have an Uber driver do a criminal record check. Pick how many times a year you want to inspect a car, there's your, your car safety and mechanical safety, mm-hmm. and tell ICBC you need an insurance product available to the taxis and the Uber companies uh, that uh, is equal and uh, get it produced because this this type of uh, insurance policy is in existence all over the place. So ICBC knows what they're doing when it comes to, to having to do that. Just tell them to get on with it and frankly we've waited a, a little over a year now and if, if the Minister had bothered to read Mr. Harris' original 34-page report, all 34 pages of it, including indexes, uh, that that was almost identical to what we see coming out right now, although it was commissioned by City of Vancouver. But it talked about cross-border district mm-hmm. areas, it cited Boston and other areas as examples, it talked a little bit and touched on some ride-hailing issues. There's nothing here that can't be done. And frankly, if we're, if we're expected to be passing legislation in October, which is fine, why is she now the minister now saying it won't be till late 2019? And she's actually been uh, quoted in some other uh, publications yesterday as saying it could actually be early 2020 mm. that we see this. So. Why the rush to pass legislation in October if you're not ha- intending on having any re- ride-hailing companies
0: in operation until probably 2020? Mm. Yeah, I asked her that this morning. If she was committed to 2020, she would not say, uh, Ian, when you look at what we're doing as we, as we kind of try and level the playing field, as it were, uh, is it a matter of of lifting up, uh, and, uh, well, I'm trying to phrase this right, but the taxi industry has some rather archaic rules that govern it. Uh, do you pull Uber back into those rules, which is a step back in my opinion, or do you just free the whole system up and move it into the future?
6: Uh, that, that's a very important question because ultimately you have to do two things. You have to modernize the taxi industry, and you have to enable Ride sharing and I use the word enable because it's not government's job to kind of get into the mechanics of the business here their job is to kind of lay out a framework and some basic rules um, one of the things that concerned us with the report yesterday and, I, and Peter's comments are bang on one of the things that concerned us with the co- with the report yesterday is that uh, in the in the executive summary the first two paragraphs on the first page of the 68 page report which we read in great detail um, the first two paragraphs it makes it very clear that mr. Harra had some constraints put on him his, his phrasing was very clear that this is independent of whether the government should decide to get into ride-sharing, or if they get into ride-sharing. Is oh my gosh, they actually are, they've given this guy terms of reference that make it clear that they're not overly committed to this yet. So um, we made it clear in our report that this is about modernizing the taxi industry to ensure that they have a level playing field on which to come to, to compete, that we modify the Passenger Transportation Act, which has not been done since 1972, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've also got the Motor Vehicle Act that needs to be done, and you've got to get rid of this crazy rule around the taxi industry where you can't, within the lower mainland, uh, pick up passengers in one city and drop them in another and then take a passenger from that city back to your original uh, point of, of origin uh, because you, need, you don't have the right license. Like, it's silly. We should be able to have a, a region-wide license for our taxi drivers and give them a chance to compete in this invariable 21st century technology that's coming at us.
0: Peter, you sat in that legislative all-party community that toured around the province. How much did the, the challenges of regulation come up there? It, it was a big challenge and, and it was an interesting, inviting list. Uh, I mean, we, we had the
7: BC Federation of Labour presented, which I'm not quite sure, you know, uh, the depth that we need to worry about unionization of uh, Uber drivers, but that, <laughs> that came up too. So I mean, it was covered off in great deal, pr- pretty much everything that you could imagine. Um, at the end of the day, this really isn't that complicated. We, we, you know, Uber's been around for about five, six years. Lyft, those types of services. Uh, the first few years, there was glitches in other cities that they operated on. So the fact that BC took a few years to figure things out and figure out where they wanted to go is understandable. The fact that the legislation and, and the changes that were written by the BC Liberals and ready to go, and then the election came up, um, and, and maybe the new government wanted to make sure what those rules and regulations would be takes a few months, that's understandable. But now we're talking about not implementing till probably 2020 and even maybe further. It is totally inexcusable now moving forward with this current government that they have repeatedly delayed and delayed and delayed when everything else has been well known now, well studied, any glitches in other jurisdictions have been well figured out. Uh, The time to get moving with this is now. The Premier himself promised 2017. He then promised 2018, not that long ago, And now we're looking at 2020, if we're lucky. Um, This is beyond ridiculous. Uh, The the minister's excuses do not hold water. And frankly, as someone from the interior staring down the barrel of Greyhound pulling out services in two and a half months, this is the same minister that's supposed to solve the Greyhound deregulation and getting new private operators going from city to city with buses. It's laughable in the extreme that uh, the confidence that they
0: still seem to have with this minister. Mm. Uh, Ian, uh, when we look at this particular issue, uh, I mean, there's definitely a political component to it. But the other thing that baffles me is there's no shortage of best practices. I mean, we can't look at at ride-sharing and say, well, there's a void. Uh, We don't know much about it. There's no studies to speak of. I mean, there are studies at the Wazoo. There's best practices in in big cities all over the world to look at. Uh, Why not cherry-pick some of those?
6: Your know, you, your 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 answer is there is no reason to not cherry pick from those. Uh, page three of uh, the revised version of that 2016 report, we actually had plan to release this month. And so we chose to release it yesterday once we got wind that this report was coming down. So there's a revised version of our 2016 report that came out yesterday. And on page 3 of that report we quote what happened in Mississauga, Toronto, Calgary, Edmonton and Quebec and Brampton, just to use Canadian examples of how the taxi industry has done very well in those geographies and, and, and it was not you know Armageddon uh, by any stretch. And indeed those Canadian cities in a Canadian context have figured out how to do this. So it's not like we even have to look over the U.S. border or into Europe to find out what worked there and then try to translate it back into our, our, you know, our kind of sleepy little Canadian way of doing things. Uh, We've got the evidence right in front of us. And the problem is, is that British Columbia, uh, and I definitely include Kelowna and Kamloops and the Lower Mainland in this comment, we pride ourselves on having a very significant presence in the new economy, high-tech sector. You've got over 110,000, 120,000 people employed now in the high-tech sector. It is embarrassing that Vancouver, which is the entry point for most of our international visitors and tourists or business people, is sitting there with all these people in the tech sector, world class in post-production movie and television stuff, wireless application, video gaming, and these same people who are coming here as investors or technologists Can't get Uber or Lyft or one of the other products uh, when they arrive at the airport, and instead they have to wait 45 minutes to an hour for a cab sometimes. That's just not acceptable, and it's an embarrassment to us as British Columbians uh, on
0: the international stage. All right, I concur. We're flat out of time. Ian, uh, thank you, sir. Very much a pleasure. Pete, thank you as well. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. All right, there we go. Uh, That's it for Inside Politics Uh, today. We'll see you again next week, and I can tell you in studio will be Attorney General David Eby. We'll see you then.
6: Where the
1: interior stays connected, CHNL in Kamloops, is Radio NL 610 AM, local news
0: now. That's the end of the radio version of Inside Politics, but as usual, I have some extra content I'd like to plug into the podcast as a bonus. This week, we have a conversation that also took place a little earlier before the show with Transportation Minister Claire Chavenna. Let's listen in. Claire Trevena is joining us on the line right now. Good morning, Claire. How are you? I'm
3: just great. How are you doing this morning?
0: I am well, except uh, my Uber is not showing up for some reason.
3: Well, your Uber could show up if um, ride-hailing companies chose to apply right now under the present regulations, which they are entitled to do. But we are going to make it easier for them and make it easier for people who are looking to get uh, alternative transportation as well as taxi. Yesterday we announced they're going to be uh, the possibility of up to 500 more cabs around the province, and 300 will mostly stay in the lower mainland, but that's 200 around the rest of the province, start moving towards more flexible approach to getting a cab, and then... Um, dealing with the legislation, dealing with fixing six pieces of legislation so we can uh, pave the way for Uber. We've also got to get the insurance products in place, and that needs the legislation, and that's why it is very frustrating for people. I understand that, Um, and that's what's taking the time. Uh,
0: You keep repeating it's very frustrating for people. Your government promised we'd do this in 2017, then we moved that to 2018, now it's 2019. What is the big problem here? It, It works everywhere else in North America, in Vancouver, Vancouver Nothing but delays can't get it done.
3: One of the things that we have here, which is different from uh, other places, is the levels of uh, the, the levels of government involved. We look at things on a provincial basis. We have the present Transportation Board. We also have municipal authorities. In other jurisdictions, it's primarily the municipalities that are deciding. Here we have those different layers that make it more complex. Uh, we also have, obviously, the provincial insurance. So there, there are many issues, and this is why I think, although they have the ability to come, uh, uh, these big international companies have chosen not to so far, but uh, we're trying to make it more more simple, make it more streamlined. But doing legislation does take time, and we want to get it right. I mean, people's safety has to come first. So those people who are using these vehicles, who are driving these vehicles, the other people on the road, we've got to make sure that safety comes first.
0: What about the safety? Uh, we've seen
3: the problems that have cu- come in other jurisdictions, so we don't want to have to reinvent the wheel. Let's let's just learn from them learn from our own experiences and get this right first time.
0: What about the safety of people waiting hours for a taxi cab uh, that's either late or, or never shows up at all and the wee hours of the morning in a huge city like Vancouver? I mean, there's safety issues there as well.
3: There absolutely are safety issues and that's why we're working to get more cabs on the road. I think that the two things that we've we've announced yesterday with the extra cabs on the road, that's going to be 300 extra vehicles in the Metro Vancouver in the, in the next uh, few months, which I think is going to make a significant difference for people. The other thing is that um, we're allowing the the, the change in allowing some flair flexi- flexibility, which means that if you are using a cab at a time which you normally wouldn't, you might get it at a cheaper rate if you hail bar, use an, an
0: app. So I
3: think these things will, will make it, I think people will see a notable difference just from having the, the new cabs on the street.
0: Well, a skeptic might say that you're uh, bowing to a taxi lobby that has a pretty large political club and bolstering an industry that's doing everything it can to make sure Uber does not set up shop here.
3: I'm looking at safety I'm looking at people's needs. And I'm looking at people's safety what we're doing is initially getting more cars on the road that's what I'm hearing from people they need a ride so we use the existing system that we have then we fix the system which is the other thing we're doing fixing the system to make sure that, that people have that choice that people can if they choose uh, use a use an app and hire a car in a different way but we need to get uh, we need to get things in place first and we can't just sort of open the doors and say here you come and then we're going to make up the rules that wouldn't be fair on anybody we Put, we're going to put the rules down and make sure that uh, they're modern, they're contemporary, they work for BC, and they work for all players and the people who want these rides.
0: But uh, fair enough. But how long do you need to set up the rules? The previous BC Liberal government included all the work that they did on this. We're at four years now. You've got no shortage of best practices to look at in any number of jurisdictions in North America and around the world. Again, Vancouver, the largest metropolitan area in the entirety of North America, can't get Uber done.
3: Well, the previous government had from 2012 to 2017 to get something done. Uh, they chose not to do anything. We are uh, been in government for a year. We are moving. We have said that we're bringing in, with the Passenger Transportation Board, we're bringing in more vehicles. So immediately there will be more vehicles on the road. Uh, next few months people will start seeing that difference. Then we are working. We have legislation to deal with. It takes time to amend six pieces of legislation to bring legislation that was written in the 1920s and 1930s up to contemporary standard that will serve the market uh, and then we need we'll be dealing, working with ICBC for that product that will ensure that people can afford the insurance. Uh, we yeah, we've know that uh, this is a big problem for those companies, that they've decided not to choose to come to BC although they could up to this point and so we're, we're going to make sure that people have those options.
0: You keep saying that they could and they haven't yet, but both Lyft and Uber are well on record as saying they want into Metro Vancouver. They're poised and ready to go.
3: They they can apply. They can apply under existing rules. We have an existing system that they can apply. They have chosen not to. I think that they see that the rules may be too onerous. They don't like the insurance that they would have to pay, whatever reason it is. And I'm not going to uh, answer for the companies why they haven't applied, but we have rules in place. What we're doing is we're modernizing that legislation. We will make it easier for them. We'll make it easier for others in B.C. who want to apply, and we're going to make sure that we have, in the next few months, we're going to have more cabs on the road, so to deal with that pressure that people are already feeling of not being able to get a ride.
0: There is no, no whatever political influence or a, a taxi lobby that controls swing ridings that didn't factor into this at all.
3: Uh, for me, as Minister of Transportation, I am dealing with people's safety. I'm dealing with a de- definite need for people to get around. I'm dealing with uh, the complex issue of many pieces of legislation. Uh, I, I want to make sure that we have people have that choice, that people can travel safely, that people can drive on our roads safely, and that we are, have a system that really works for people in BC.
0: 2019, a hard deadline, Claire. I mean, that's it. 2019, we are going to see ride-sharing in some form or fashion. No more delays. Is that is that your commitment?
3: If, if, if companies choose to apply, they can apply. We're going to have the legislation in place this fall that will allow for the insurance product to come in. ICBC has indicated that will be by fall 2019, which means that if those companies wish to apply, they can do so.
0: You, you understand. You keep saying you understand the frustrations here. There's a lot of people, and I, I've been hearing about them on, from social media and phone calls and all sorts of things. You're saying, "Listen, I get to enjoy Uber literally every time I leave Vancouver to another jurisdiction. Why can't we get it done here?" It just seems to me that there is a significant amount of foot dragging going on here.
3: Absolutely not. We're working as fast as we can. We've got a significant amount of work to do to get to the place where we can bring it in and bring it in in a way that is, as I say, safe, uh, is respectful for everybody who lives in B.C., that they can know that they can hit their app, get that vehicle, whichever company chooses to come, uh, get that vehicle and travel in it safely. There are a lot of uh, things that we need to do to make sure that everyone is safe in, in that realm, and that's what we're working on at the moment. We're going to be having legislation in the Full, that will make that will set the scene
0: for that will taxis and uber or ride sharing uh, services be restricted to certain geographic areas the way the way that they are now metro vancouver can operate one way urban taxis can't get in or rural taxis can't get in there will uber have to stick within those geographical boundaries because it seems a small print on what you put out yesterday says so well this
3: is one of things that's going to be discussed. We're going to do some more consultation with the Passenger Transportation Board. We've kept Dr. Harrow, who's a, an expert in this, he'll continue working with the Passenger Transportation Board. These are various things that are going to be discussed in the coming weeks into months as we uh, get that legislation ready.
0: Alright, you've been generous with your time and we've taken a few more minutes uh, than than we promised you, so we'll let you go. Uh, Claire, thanks so much, appreciate it.
3: It's a real pleasure, thank you. Bye now.
0: The Transportation Minister, Claire Trevena there, talking about ride-sharing as we face another delay initially promised by the NDP government to come in in 2017. Uh, that was moved to 2018, and we learned yesterday it has been delayed to 2019. We'll take a quick break on this podcast bonus part of Inside Politics. On the other side, a final segment, this time with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation on ride-sharing.
1: Local news now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on
0: Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by the B.C. Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Chris Sims. Good morning, Chris. How are you?
8: Good morning. I'm very well. Thanks for having me on.
0: No worries. So did you get out of your costume from yesterday yet, or what's going <laughs> with that?
8: You know, it takes a while to get out of polyester.
0: <laughs> <laughs> for those who don't know, you held a... Uh, that 70s th- themed event to uh, raise a point about ICBC in a story we ran here yesterday. But I didn't realize you were doing the full show until I saw the video clips later on. So nice to well, you. Well,
8: I've named her uh, Darla the Disco Driver. There we and she's to point out that ICBC was hatched back in the era of the Gremlin, the Pinto, and Gunsmoke. <laughs> and it's time to update that sucker. And actually, ICBC is one of the reasons why we have problems lagging behind on ride sharing, too.
0: Absolutely. I'm glad you said sucker. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Chris, uh, ride-sharing uh, delayed again to 2019. Uh, I'm sure you're up to speed on what's going on here. We're probably in, about, I think, about year four, if you go back to what the Liberals did, of uh, dragging our feet on Uber and Lyft and other things like that. So, uh, I, I, I'm quite frankly, I'm baffled. Uh, your reaction to what we heard yesterday?
8: It's really frustrating, and I think... I'll be just be frank. Everybody knows that they're just kicking the can down the road politically because they want to give the taxi industry a head start. And as we heard from your local MLA right there in Kamloops who was sitting in on the panel uh, before all of this happened, uh, they want to give the taxi industry a head start so they can have their own app service in place for about 18 months or so before we give other co- uh, companies like Uber and Lyft an actual chance to come into the market. And it's weird because I think British Columbians think that we're advancing advanced and progressive and educated and technologically sound and all that other cool stuff But then you land in Vancouver or you land in Kamloops or Abbotsford and you can't get an Uber or a Lyft. And I don't know about you, but I have a ton of people that I hear from, colleagues who say, why can't I pick up an Uber or a Lyft here anymore? And it's because the provincial government has a form of authority over transportation that we don't see in other jurisdictions in many cases, and they're continuously delaying this thing and dragging their feet. So from a taxpayer's perspective, we'd like to see ride-sharing come in because it's It's private companies. They actually make money doing it. People want it. And it it eases demand on publicly funded transit systems. And so it's a win-win. So we want to see it happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A couple of things to just chase down with you. You mentioned off the top that there's an ICBC component to this?
8: Yes. And so every now and then you'll hear the list of reasons why we can't do it yet. And quite often you'll hear one of the reasons is insurance. Of course, if somebody else gets into your car... You are, in some cases, uh, responsible for them. It depends on how, how you're driving, what form of insurance you have, et cetera. But since we have a government force monopoly with ICBC, they're not as responsive and reactive to it. So we've literally got a corporation from the 1970s now having to deal with all sorts of stuff, including the very modern idea of hailing a ride from your smartphone, whoever would have thunk it. And so actually, when you, when you hear the objections ride-sharing, they'll bring up ICBC saying, oh, they need to grapple with it. But frankly, other jurisdictions have already done this. Private companies who provide insurance deal with Uber and Lyft all the time.
0: Yeah, that's the thing I don't get. I mean, if you're looking for best practices, there's literally no shortage. Nope. Any any city in North America, go look there. Any city around the world, go look there. I mean, I think you can, you can pretty much hail an Uber in Kazakhstan for God's sake and not in
8: Vancouver, which is the weirdest thing. It is the weirdest thing. And you know what? If you want to find out, like you said, Said best practices, you don't need to have a fully paid junket for a week. Pick up the phone, right? Do some research. Like, for example, Phoenix, it was really interesting. They had their so called Uber effect, and they were able to eliminate 1.8 million driving hours, and they estimate that they saved 900,000 gallons of fuel between 2012 and 2016. So if you're looking for the idea of reducing fuel consumption, reducing the demand on transit systems, you know, enabling a private company to make money for something people actually want, the Phoenix uh, the Phoenix situation with the Uber effect is a perfect example, and they did a study on it. And so just pick up the phone and find this stuff out. And I think it's clear to everybody who follows BC politics that they're purposefully ragging the puck on this thing.
0: Yeah, we had the minister on just a little while ago, uh, and I asked her point, blank if this is her government kowtowing to a taxi lobby that is a pretty significant political club. No, no, no. She said this is about safety. Uh, Do you think there's politics at play here?
8: It is absolutely politics. And this is the funny thing when they say it's about safety and we need to study it, etc. Just look around. Like, you don't even need to look to the states. There's a ton of Canadian jurisdictions that have already done this, both provincially and municipally. I mean, this thing has been studied to death. And that's what I think people find it almost amusing if they're not so frustrated. When they come here to BC, or if you're living here in BC, and you want to catch a ride to work, you want to go out with your friends, you know, you've got uh, legal marijuana coming into effect this fall, we need more options for transportation, not fewer, and then we have politicians pretending that this is all big, confusing, and difficult, and they can't actually get it done. Well, frankly, it's their job to get it done, and it's one of the things that they campaigned on. So you're absolutely right to hold their feet to the fire and to not take the idea that this isn't politics. It's pure politics.
0: Absolutely. Chris, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
8: Thank you very much. You guys take care up there.
0: All right. Talk to you soon. That's the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Chris Sims. That was the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Chris Sims, talking about ride-sharing. And that's it for this podcast bonus portion of Inside Politics. We'll see you again next week. Again next week in studio, Attorney General David Eby.
1: News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com.